Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Amy Westervelt. Amy, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. We just chatted a second before hitting record, and I forgot to mention, like, I know your voice. It's, oh. <laughs> do you get that a lot of people saying, oh, I'm used to hearing you online? Yes, yes, I do. Actually, like sometimes when I meet people or talk to them for the first time, they're like, oh, it's so weird. It's like, you know, it's like listening to your podcast, but we're on the phone. <laughs> yeah. And you have the tonality. So I know you mainly from Drilled. Yeah. And so it's a podcast that's how eight seasons in, nine seasons? My God, we're on season 10 right now. I can't. Oh, okay. can't believe. Yeah, I have not. I have not listened to every episode. <laughs> but so, okay, so Drilled, I also know that you have won a Edward R. Murrow Award that you've before, I think before the podcasting. Yes. You appeared, I saw the list here, Guardian, Wall Street Journal, NPR, New York Times, Huffington Post, Popular Science. And you founded the network of podcasts that your podcast is in. Yes, that's true. That's a lot of stuff. I know. I'm very tired. <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to talk about Drilled and some of the stuff you cover there, but I wonder if we could cover some of the background of how you became a journalist and how you yeah. started a whole network and, and got something that's so insightful and so productive. And then there's a whole bunch of other podcasts in there too. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's see. I, I kind of, I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the answers to that are, are like sort of random accidents. So I, you know, I, I didn't really intend to become a journalist. I needed a job like, you know, immediately after graduating because I had loans to pay off and bills to pay. And I, I got a job at a magazine. It was like one of these magazines that could only have existed in dot com San Francisco days. It was a, a print magazine about online shopping. <laughs> you will not be surprised to learn that it never actually saw the light of day. We uh -huh. I like I a year working there and I and we got this like first issue ready and then everyone realized it was a terrible idea but it gave yeah, me it does seem to be a bit of like if they're shopping online are they going to read print it's, yeah it's a ridiculous idea it was being put out as a companion to better homes and gardens so yeah it never fully launched but it gave me you know sort of a a taste of of what it was like to work in publishing and work for a magazine and you know, write stories and research things. And I really liked it. So I applied for for a job at a local arts magazine in San Francisco and I got it. And it was like, you know, I was an intern. I was uh, an editorial intern. And on my second day, every single person at the magazine on the editorial side quit because <laughs> the boss Sorry was so laugh. terrible. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it was funny. I mean, I was just like, okay, what's happening? I mean, it was one of those where, I mean, th this happens a lot in publishing where the the publisher is sort of a maniac and makes everyone's life miserable. And so, yeah. So you decide to become a publisher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I was uh, like, all of a sudden it, you know, I think I was 24 or something at this time. The publisher was like, okay, you and the other intern are the new, you know, interim managing editors. Let's see how you do. And like, one of you will get the job at the end. <laughs> and 
so then on like the the day after that, the other intern showed up late. So she got fired. So it was me and they had planned out this issue that was going to be their first politics issue. And the creative director was like, we're going to interview Ralph Nader and we're going to interview Noam Chomsky and we're going to do this like super, you know, lefty progressive politics issue. And I was like, great. Have like, where are all those interviews? And they were like, oh, none of them have happened yet. (laughs) The magazine's supposed to come out in two weeks. So, wow. Yeah. So I, you know, probably because I just didn't know any better, just started like sending out requests and getting things lined up and and, like pulled it together. We we put that issue out and we did, in fact, get an interview with Ralph Nader and Noam Chomsky and lots of other folks. And the uh, issue did really well. And so I got the job as managing editor of this magazine. And had that job for, I don't know, a year or two. And again, it was like kind of baptism by fire. I was Mm -hmm. like, I knew nothing and had to sort of figure out how to do this job. And of course, like, you know, a couple of years later, I also stormed out the door and quit because that guy was terrible to work for. And that actually is how I ended up doing environmental journalism because I was suddenly without a job. And I needed to pay rent in like two weeks. And a a friend of mine was working for an engineering firm that needed someone to to just like write and in some cases rewrite or update case studies about projects that they had done. And one of the projects that they had done was to help re-engineer offshore oil platforms for Shell to prepare for sea level rise. And it was a project that had been done in the 90s. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting because I'm reasonably certain that Shell was not even admitting that sea level rise was a thing that was going to happen at the time that this project was being done. And I looked into it and sure enough, you know, it it predated Shell sort of acknowledging that climate change was even a thing. And I, I thought that was interesting. So I pitched a story on it to like a small local environmental magazine and then became sort of obsessed with that subject from that point forward of just, you know, the idea of information as power and the way that companies kind of wield that information. So, yeah, a lot of people, I don't know, people are always like, were you in the recycling club? Did you love Al Gore? No, I was not like a a hardcore environmentalist per se as a young person. I really kind of got interested in this through the the lens of kind of fairness and accountability and and those sorts of things. So I've been keeping track here. So it began with debt. Debt, yeah. Then a shitty boss who put <laughs> yeah. you behind the eight ball of having not enough time. Then you quit. Yeah. Then with Shell, I guess it was dismay or disillusionment maybe. Yes. But then obsession. Yes. And underlying all this, I think that all these things are are things pushing you. So to swim upstream like that, I'm hearing a lot of passion. Passion for journalism and then but then passion I'm for journalism and also um I've I have like a real bee in my bonnet about fairness in general and sort of you know, fighting for the underdog. I, as so I'm a twin. I have a, a twin brother and um when we were young he was a lot shorter than me for a long time just because of how girls and boys grow. You know? mm-hmm. and, and there were many times where he got picked on or bullied in school. And I wound up kind of, 
well, having fist fights with boys on his behalf. <laughs> All right. So after obsession, we have violence. <laughs> violence, yes. Just like a sort of a, a protectiveness of people who are underdogs. And like, and so I, I've said this before, but I feel like in the case of, of climate, really like the vast majority of us are have been put in the position of being sort of underdogs, you know, of not having all of the information we need or not having sort of the power to shape the options that are available to us. And the result of that being a big problem that we all have to deal with. So, yeah, that's kind of. And then, uh, sorry, on the podcast side, I you know, there again, it's sort of like I, I was really interested in radio. I actually just volunteered at my local NPR station as a way to get training in audio. And then they were like, well, you know, you've, at that point, I had been a print reporter for maybe 10 years. And they were like, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot easier for us to train people how to use audio equipment than to teach people how to be reporters. So once I had kind of learned the the basics, I got a job as a community reporter there, which was fascinating because it was in Reno, Nevada. And it's like a very uh, wacky place to report. <laughs> There's a lot yeah, of... they shoot people just to watch them die. It's really, it's like, you know, kind of very, very Wild West still. And so that was super interesting. And then I learned that you know every you know four minute news story has about five hours worth of tape that that made it possible and there's a lot of good stories on that tape it's just you know not enough time to get into all of them and once I started to get interested in podcasting I it took me a really long time to try to figure out well what could be a good story a good because I'd done a lot of climate reporting by that point. And I wanted to find a, a story that could be kind of a more narrative podcast on climate. And I, I got an assignment to cover a, a climate lawsuit in California, where the judge had asked for a, a climate science tutorial. So it was this really interesting scenario where I was in this courthouse and there was like you know, the oil company lawyers and the scientists and a bunch of activists and this judge who was kind of eccentric. And I was like, oh, that's it. I'm going to do a true crime podcast about climate change because this was at a time when, you know, true crime was getting really, really popular. And it was like just a format and a genre that people were familiar with. And I feel like that helps when you're trying to tell a complicated story, if you can do it in a, a familiar format. But then I pitched it to all the big companies and they all said that there just wasn't enough of an audience for climate podcasts to, to justify doing a, a narrative podcast. And I thought they were wrong. And so I just made it anyway. And that's that's how I ended up starting a company. It was not on purpose, really. I um, If someone else had wanted to make my podcast, I would have probably never started anything. Well, it seems like, I mean... There seems demand. So you discovered it. I mean, yes. Oh, yeah. The punchline of that is that, like, the first season of Drilled got a million listeners. So I was felt very vindicated in my in my belief that there was an audience and it was a good idea. Did you call them up again? I did not, but I have <laughs> heard from from a few of them since then to to work on other projects. So yeah, I felt definitely vindicated. Now you described 
the us, many of us as, as the underdogs. And you kind of described it in a way of, of like them having greater negotiating power or greater... Well, when I think about Drilled, I think about this behind the scenes public relations versus propaganda yeah. and this... I mean, we see it, we're all familiar with it in tobacco. I think a lot of people are familiar with it in oil. We see it in the Sacklers of... Yeah. And I recently had uh, one of the authors of When McKinsey Comes to Town of this, and also King Leopold's Ghost, uh, if we go back even farther, of people crafting this narrative that gets people to see it a certain way. And it's really insidious. Yes, it is. And I I'm feel just, like you've gotten caught up in it and like you, you started pulling at the string and the whole sweater became unraveled. Totally. I'm, I am very much like the, you know, the meme of like a bunch of red string on the board <laughs> where I'm just like, wait, what? Like this person talked to that person just this morning before, before we're talking, I'm, I'm working on a story about the role that think tanks have played in all of this. And it's incredible, like how much, you know, just one person who came up with one think tank then turns out to be this linchpin of all of these major moments in history where I'm kind of obsessed with this idea that, you know, there are all these things that have happened that we learn about in school or we just see happening around us and we think they're just sort of organically happening and very few times is that the case you know it's just it's incredible to me just how much effort has been put into i don't know whether it's shaping or thwarting democracy you know it's kind of like as soon as more people were able to vote people with enough money started to try to shape the way that those votes went and make sure it was in their favor it's money and, and techniques of influence because Edward Bernays shows up a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, so people, once upon a time, a product would be sold on its benefits and costs, I guess. And now I was talking to someone, I was talking to someone about rolling coal, which is. Oh, God. Yeah. So, yeah. Because actually this friend of mine in California has decided he's going to get his he wants to get his emissions down to three tons per year, which is I was, why that number, because that's what the UN says. If everyone globally has that, then we can, that's what they recommend. Hmm, that's interesting. So he's bought this tiny little car that maxes out at 25 miles per gallon. And and I said, has anyone rolled coal on you? And he goes, what's that? <laughs> and you know, if I put myself in the mindset, I think it's kind of funny. Like if I- yeah. So for people who don't know, you can get the switch installed on your dashboard that will cause your car to emit a huge cloud of black smoke. And there's all yeah. these videos online about people with giant, usually giant pickup truck, and there'll be someone waiting for a bus or someone on an e-bike, and they'll roll coal on them. And the people pressing the button have a big laugh. And you know, from another, if you get really pissed off, I think they win. And right. And like, so that's rolling coal. And I think, I guess this was sorry for the digression, but it's like we look at the pickup truck is one of the things that we look at and feel like this is a statement of my identity. I, I actually, yeah. almost everything these days is like that. And it wasn't always like that. Yes. Yes. Although I, 
would argue that there was a relatively short period of time when products were just sold on their own merits. The PR industry in the U.S. in particular goes back to, you know, the early 1900s and really was created to deal with this problem. It's it's like you have you have multiple things happening at once, right? You have the vote expanding to, you know, beyond land owning white men. You have labor unions starting to kick up a, a fuss and, and have some wins and, and really force companies to change how they're treating workers. You have a bunch of exposés happening. You know, you've got Upton Sinclair and the, the meatpacking stuff. You've got Ida Tarbell and Standard Oil and all of these kind of muckraking journalists really uh, shining a light on what's happening and then that leading to, you know, either legal action or government regulation. And you have the U.S. government starting to pass the very first regulations on business, which didn't exist for a long time in this country. So all of that is going on. And, and you know, the, the people who had started these various companies and industries are sort of caught off guard initially and don't know how to to counteract the fact that, you know, all of a sudden they don't have total control over the environment in which they're operating. And that's where PR really starts to come into play. And they I mean, it's so early that they start doing stuff like the. I find Edward Bernays endlessly fascinating. He was, you know, Freud's nephew. He brought a lot of ideas from psychoanalysis into advertising and PR. And and the stuff that he did is so far beyond what I think people generally think of PR being. Like he, you know, my favorite example is the bacon thing where he, he, um, he had a bacon client in, I want to say like the 19-teens, you know, like 1918, 1919. And at, at the time, American Breakfast was relatively light. You know, people would have like toast and orange juice or coffee, something like that, like pretty light fare. And Bernays got this client. They wanted to sell more bacon. And he had this idea of getting a bunch of doctors to say that having a heavier breakfast with bacon involved would um, would be healthier, would keep, you know, would keep weight down, would give people more energy, all of this stuff. So he gets I don't know, a thousand doctors to sign on to this idea. And then he he writes a press release and he sends it out to the media and the media all pick up this story of like, oh, it's healthier to have bacon with your breakfast. And now, I mean, today we think of bacon and eggs as like the traditional American <laughs> breakfast, you know, but it was yeah. completely manufactured just to sell more bacon. Yeah, I was listening to that episode a while ago and, oh, that's how I could say shitty early in this call because- I remember someone saying, are those dicks? Because <laughs> there's all this subtle or this this inside or this repressed psychological stuff that he was, that was like his tool of the trade, right? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Like he used that to, to counteract a lot of the stuff that he got hired to do was counteract gender taboos around certain products. So like it was taboo for women to smoke at a certain point. And he had this idea of turning smoking into like a, a women's liberation thing. Um, but he totally tied in like cigarettes as phalluses and all of this like, you know, Freudian psychoanalysis stuff too. Um, same with the car thing. Like we have him to thank for, you know, big cars being associated with big dicks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so. 
yeah, he was he was a big fan of of like integrating those kinds of subtle messages into ads and and just sort of like cultural stuff in general. With the cigarette thing too, he um he staged a whole fake protest. He he got a bunch of you know his friends' socialite daughters to march up and down fifth avenue uh smoking and and then he alerted the press that there was a protest happening <laughs> and created this whole idea that you know young women were smoking as a a way to you know fight for independence and rights torches of freedom torches of freedom yeah totally manufactured but you know within a year the tobacco companies were selling to twice as many customers and then there was Oh, his name, uh, the mobile, uh, the Exxon, the, wait, the mobile guy with uh, Masterpiece Theater. Herb. Yes, Herb Schmertz. Schmertz, oh, yes. Such a genius. Honestly, like I have a lot of, like I'm, I'm really, I'm fascinated by these things. I, I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, these people and their ideas did a real disservice to the American public, but I'm also, you know, I, like I've got to respect how smart it all was. <laughs> <laughs> it's very clever. Yeah, Herb Schmertz wanted to make mobile seem like a sort of a classy oil company. And um, one of the ways that he went about doing that was sponsoring Masterpiece Theater. And at one point, I mean, he really was like such an important figure in British cinema because Masterpiece Theater was like the way that you got your stuff to an American audience. And he was the guy that was picking a lot of those shows and films and whatnot. So, yeah, it's it's weird. Like I talk, I always talk about how uh, we have mobile oil to thank for Downton Abbey. <laughs> well, there, there's one that I was listening to when you were talking about the ads that they put on the op-ed page of the New York Times. And you were saying how the beginning of the sentence was something like, and they, like this campaign was incredibly influential and it influenced, and I thought you were going to say the American public, but it was the New York Times. Yes. And that was a real twist. That was so interesting to me because, and you know, I've talked to to folks at the Times too who are like, well, just because this publicist was claiming that they had influenced our coverage doesn't mean that they really did. And that's true. What's interesting to me is that that was a goal, which we know because Mobile conducted a bunch of internal reports on whether and how much their advertorial campaigns were influencing the New York Times coverage. So the fact that that was actually part of why they were doing those campaigns is very interesting to me. And I think should be something that, you know, publications that are doing the same things today should be aware of that, you know, while they may think that they have various systems in place that that blunt that influence and, and it may it may be effective. If that's the goal of companies, then, you know, maybe publications should think twice about how much they're doing with them. Like the New York Times still makes ads for various oil companies. Their internal brand studio does a lot of of um, work for Exxon, Shell, you know, <laughs> and and they they help them to create the ads and they specifically market that service as, you know, bringing like the New York Times newsroom to your brand. So it's very much sold as like, 
we're going to help you trick people into thinking that your ad is a New York Times story. Yeah, there's a word that I've been playing around with that ultimately is, I believe, is the absolute correct word. And it's a pretty bold word. But the word is corruption that we tend to think of as like people twiddling their mustaches in the smoky back rooms. Yeah. But it's really people when they're corrupted don't feel like they're corrupted. That's right. And also, so the people in the Times don't feel like it, but they're just like, we're just providing service and we have these these walls. But also the people buying the cigarettes and the pickup trucks, they don't feel like someone has changed their identity or created these connections for them. In fact, they often feel it's a part of their identity. It's a part, it's like they love the thing. Yes. Yes. Totally. Totally. Like, and that's where I feel like it's, I don't know, that's kind of my focus is just showing, trying to show people what's actually going on behind the scenes so that they can make an informed decision. You know, I don't, I don't want to tell people that they should or shouldn't be, you know, rolling coal. But I do think it's important for them to understand that, like, that idea didn't just, you know, organically come from from like a guy who loves trucks. You know, <laughs> it's, it's part of a, a whole effort to tie, you know, a high fossil fuel lifestyle to masculinity and, uh, and freedom yeah. and freedom and all of that, you know. That like a very wealthy industry has spent billions of dollars to do. And and it's yeah, it's not just like, oh, this is what Americans do. Yeah. Yeah. And this conversation you and I are having now is scratching the surface. So, I mean, each episode goes into so much more depth than we are. So if people are feeling like intrigued, you know, you'll like these podcasts and you'll be glad you listen to them. Thank you. I'm, that's that's yeah. <laughs> you know, there's. Do you mind if I switch topics and jump into the Spodic method? Oh, go for it. Also, what's on my mind is is do we have is there a way to inoculate ourselves to this? Is there a defense from this? Is there a way to undo these associations? Right. And actually, but before I mean, no, sorry, go ahead. Well, before yeah, I was going to say, are there any? I mean, what do we? What can we do about it? So one is to be informed. That has some. Right. That has some measure. Yes. I think that like knowing about it helps. I would like to see, like, I think that, that it's one of those situations where, you know, certain people or systems being inoculated against it have a trickle down effect as well. So actually I, I feel like the media itself is, is a pretty big, big problem here. The media has not really reckoned with the extent to which it has made itself available as a tool for for these techniques. Like a lot of these techniques don't work that well unless you have a very, you know, friendly ear in the media. So I do think there's a need for for media to become more like PR literate, you know, to get to get kind of more aware of what different uh, PR people are trying to get them to do, where certain stories and information are coming from what's behind them like even when you know like i'll give you a, what a, a pretty innocuous but i think good example is um i saw i was just looking at this there's this this way that pr companies get involved with influencers on tiktok and then try to spark different food trends for clients so for example 
you know, there's a, a PR firm that is doing a bunch of, of work for the dairy industry in general in the U.S. And they brought together a bunch of food influencers to try to think about, like, what are different recipes we could come up with that would sell more dairy. And that is what sparked the butterboard trend on TikTok, which I don't know if you've seen, but it's basically these like, you know, it looks like a charcuterie board, but it's butter smeared on a board with a bunch of like, like salt and chili oil and herbs and whatever you want. And then you serve it with like warm bread or whatever. And all these outlets covered it like it was like, oh, this is cool. Butterboards. Yeah. And like no one scratched the surface of, you know, where this supposed trend had come from there. And then until like I think there was a, you know, like a a food blogger also on TikTok who was like, I'm pretty sure this was, you know, totally manufactured by the dairy industry. And yes, it turns out that it was. But like you know, it was this random food blogger on TikTok that pointed that out. It was not the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Atlantic or any of the major publications that ran stories on this trend. So I feel like getting people in the media to be more aware of the way that this stuff works is, is actually quite helpful, too, because if they don't amplify it, then it doesn't reach the public quite as much either. And then I do think, yeah, people in general knowing that this stuff is going on is helpful, too. Although I always worry that I'm going to make people even more prone to, you know, conspiracy theories and like just getting their news from this one guy they like on YouTube and stuff like that, you know. But, yeah. The demise, of the disappearance of the fairness doctrine, should that be returned? I do think that the fairness doctrine helped. So the Fairness Doctrine was this media policy that was in place only for broadcast media, not for print. So that that was a an issue with it. And it, it required that companies just give equal airtime to, you know, both sides of a controversial issue. So in some ways, you could argue that, you know, it kind of perpetuated this sense of false equivalence, like that there is always two sides to every issue and that they're equally valid and deserve an equal amount of attention and time and all of those kinds of things. But one thing that that the Fairness Doctrine did was it gave broadcasters a reason to kind of knock back some of the more, I don't know, propaganda-ish, you know, pitches from industry. It actually is the reason that you didn't see the the same kinds of advertorial things happening on TV that you saw in print was because broadcasters had the fairness doctrine to say, oh, we can't take this ad because it would be in violation of the fairness doctrine. All right, now I'm going to jump into the Spodek method. Yeah. Is the environment something that matters to you enough to act on it? I think I know the answer. Yes. When you think of the environment, when you think of nature, you know, different people have different views depending on where they grew up or different experiences they've had. If you think of yourself in nature or think of a beautiful nature scene that you've been a part of, does anything come to mind or any quintessential moments in nature? I was just going to say the thing that comes to mind is birds. I'm like, I'm completely obsessed with birds. I don't know if that's like a, a specific moment. I just am, am like, I'm 
just constantly fascinated by them. And I, I live in Costa Rica now, and so I'm kind of surrounded by extremely like exotic and majestic birds all the time. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's the thing I think of. Do you specifically go out to look for them? I don't. And I don't even like actually a friend of mine was visiting and she was asking me for you know more details about like the birds in my garden and the names of them and this and that. And I'm like, I have no idea. I I know them as like turquoise bird and like <laughs> tail bird. <laughs> you know? um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's one of those things that I just enjoy and don't feel the need to learn a bunch of detailed information about, which is uh, unusual for me. Well, the, I mean, rings true for me because my first environmental experience was probably my fifth grade teacher who got my older sister and my, I think my younger sister had her too, into these things. So Roger Torrey Peterson was a big thing for us and yeah. his book. Uh, and can you describe some of uh, like an experience you had observing a bird, whether it was intentional or not? I mean, do any sightings really stick in your mind in particular? I think like, hmm, that's a good question. I feel like it's it's almost more of a daily thing. Like I, so I go out early in the morning every morning because it's it's quite hot here and all the time. But the there's you know maybe an hour from five to six in the morning where it's cool and nice and it's very quiet. And there is one tree that I sit and have my coffee under. And it's where this one particular type of bird, which I do now know is called a quetzal, um, uh-huh. it likes to come in the morning. And it is just like, I don't know, it's so magical looking. It looks like it's not even a thing that exists in, in the world. It's sort of like turquoise color and it has this really long tail with like a very ornate like fan feather at the end of it. And I feel like it just kind of, I don't know, makes me feel sort of calm and settled every morning. Yeah, that's that's like the main thing that I think of. The other like the other sort of nature experience thing is like I have a, a real, I don't know, like relationship with the ocean where I I just it's like if if it doesn't matter like how stressed out or worried or upset I am. If I can get in the ocean, I'm completely fine and happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And that I have lots of, I don't know, like my parents used to take us to the ocean a lot as kids. And I grew up in Southern California, so it was not you know hard to get to. And it was also like a free activity that you could do with kids. Mm-hmm. You know? So, Yeah. I'm curious about the ocean because it, it it sounds like it was earlier in your life. Mm-hmm. And what uh, can you take us there? Uh, what do you see and sense and and touch and smell and hear? It's so interesting because when I was little, you know, I grew up in Southern California, so near the Pacific. So it's like waves and cold and sand and seagulls and you know, keeping an eye out for dolphins and things like that. But then I I lived in Hawaii for quite a while and then now Costa Rica. And it's like a completely, even though it's it's still the Pacific, it's a completely different Pacific. It's like warm and peaceful and I don't know, like buoyant and 
yeah, just calm. It's very, very calm. So, so yeah, I don't know. In the, in my younger days, it was sort of like much more active, you know, sort of like swimming around and trying to catch waves and, and being really energized by the ocean. And now I have like a totally different, um, situation where it's sort of like very, very calming and, and like just sort of, uh, a like calming down kind of activity. So I'm hearing calming and yeah, what emotions do you feel? I think I would describe it as like joy because it's sort of it's an activity where I don't have like I sort of instantly let go of anything else going on in my head. I the only other thing I do that has a similar feeling is cooking actually where I, uh-huh. I find it quite meditative but yeah it's it's sort of yeah just joy and a total lack of stress or anxiety or worry you didn't say the word liberating but it sounded like you yeah i would call it liberating yes it is it's sort of like a very very freeing like where just all of a sudden Everything is kind of lifted and I feel very weightless and sort of free. Man, I want to say, pardon me while I go to the ocean for a second. <laughs> Actually, I I do these workshops where people do the Spodic method with me. And the next thing I'm going to ask you is to think of something you could do to manifest those emotions, to give yourself feelings of calmness or of liberation and freedom in a different place. In something new, and I someone did it with me recently because when I do it, if there's an odd number of people in the workshop, and I get paired up with someone, and I just recently kayaked on the Hudson, which is they have this free kayaking, and it was, I meant to go there for an hour, and I meant to leave it at eleven, get back by noon. I got back at six p.m., and it was just wonderful, and I could go on about that, but, and it's just, I mean, it's really like a three minute, a thirty minute walk from my home, and. But it's also another world. Yes. I love that. I know. Yeah. Like right now the the ocean is about a, it's like a 10 minute, I have to drive, but it's a 10 minute drive. But yeah, same thing. It feels like a completely different universe. So here's the invitation. I invite you to think of something you could do that you're not already doing to create those emotions. And so a couple conditions something you're not already doing, something you do yourself. A lot of people want to get their kids to do it or their company to do it or something like that, but that's nice. But this is for you to do something yourself. Yeah. And to have some physical component, not just read a book or watch a movie or a documentary. And so that in some way you leave the world better than you found it. But everyone hears something I didn't say. I'm not saying something to fix anything. It's really not about the rest of the world, although that may be affected. It's really to Give yourself the feelings that nature gives you, but you know you don't have access to, well, I guess you do have access to the beach a lot and you have access to birds a lot, but someplace where you might not expect it. I mean, in your regular life, would you be game to coming up with something? Totally. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of, I mean, I think, I feel like this is something that I've been wanting to to do and have not, but I do feel like it would give myself those feelings and potentially like, I don't know, in a way where I could spread those feelings. 
it's around as well, which is that I keep meaning to, instead of like sitting under my tree every morning, get out in my neighborhood and walk around both to like, you know, move and see, see other birds, but also to just meet more people in my neighborhood and like actually kind of feel like I'm, I don't know, like combining being in nature with being in my community. A lot of people, when I ask them, they a common reaction is, oh, I've been meaning to do this thing for a while. This is my chance. Yes, totally. Totally. Yes. And while I don't want to leave the witness, a very common <laughs> result is connection with people more and it's a more yeah. meaningful connection. Yeah. Yeah. Would you be game to come back and share your experience? Totally. Yeah. And so let's make it a a specific, do you know the term smart goal? Like specific, measurable, like how many times would you have to do it? Yeah. That if I said, how did it go? You'd have a meaningful answer. Yeah. I feel like I would have to do it at least like two mornings a week so that it's a regular thing. And for how many weeks? For like eight weeks. So would you be game to schedule another conversation in two months and yeah. share how it went? Yes, I totally would. Okay. And so this is the Spodic method, the first part of it. Then there's the actual doing. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to ask you, do you think you'll enjoy this experience? How, what do you think it'll be like? I think I will totally enjoy it. And I think that I don't know what it'll be like. We'll see. I don't know. I don't. I actually, I mean, this is terrible. And this is also part of why I, I want to do it. I don't know what the neighborhood is like early in the morning. If it's like, if it's calm and peaceful, like my backyard, or if like people are out and it's busy and whatnot. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. So here's a prediction I make with everyone is that, or not with everyone, but a lot of people, however much you think you're going to enjoy it, I predict you're going to enjoy it more, even taking into yeah. account that I just said that. Yeah. And so, well, we're running out of time, so I won't talk about, maybe next time we can also talk about the method itself, because it's it's not exactly an inoculation from the effects of public relation propaganda, but it is designed to tap into intrinsic motivations that are already there. Yes. That's great. So I'll be, I'm, now I'm very curious and I can't wait because also because I've been hearing your voice and it's so, it's different, you know, and plus I'm used to listening to you at more than one time speed. <laughs> Does everyone say that to you? No, actually. Really? No, I'm surprised. I mean, some people definitely do um, where they're like, wow, you talk so much slower than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, I am from California, so that plays into it too. <laughs> well, thank you very much for this conversation. And uh, we'll pick up where we left off. And we also, we, we talked about just scratching the surface of propaganda and public relations, but there's all this other stuff about what what these companies are doing in the news and government lawsuits and things like things that people are doing. So there's a lot of not just drilled seasons, but lots of other directions that you're going in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. I still work as a print reporter as well. So I've got 
you know, I contribute to The Guardian quite a bit and various other publications as well. So there's always news stories coming out. And then actually even just on the Drilled website now, we're doing a lot more stories that are just on the website too. So that's drilled.media if people are interested. And I am. So I'll be there. <laughs> well, anything to wrap up with besides that? Besides going to drill.media? I don't think so. I feel like that's, yeah, that's great. I appreciate you having me on to talk about all this stuff. It's, it's always fun for me. And I'm very curious about this method. Yeah, I look forward to picking up here when we start next time. And so after we close, let's. I hope you'll stay on and we can schedule. Yeah, for sure. Well, Amy Westervelt, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.